So when you have singers <laughs> who are in unideal spaces, all I did was surround myself with open suitcases. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we always have suitcases. You always have suitcases. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. All while making this first season, I knew I wanted to end it by speaking with someone who is making it an opera in the most conventional of terms, whose resume looks like what we dream of when we're told what's possible. When we're listening to those old recordings of our favorite singers, seeing ourselves standing on the same stage as they did, making those same sorts of moments. I wanted to talk to someone like this, who had figured out how to do it without silencing themselves as artists or as human beings. Someone making it on their own terms, who has learned how to integrate all of who they are into their artistic practice even while being savvy enough to see the business for what it is and shield the softer parts of themselves. And most importantly, someone making their own opportunities, making their own art, even as the opportunities are rolling in from around the opera world. And because they will not compromise their standards, they are doing their part to move the industry forward. Because this podcast is not about leaving the opera industry. It's about finding your voice and being true to yourself. And if that means leaving or forging your own wild creative path, I am here to cheer you on and enjoy what you create. But if it means staying and making great art and helping to heal an industry that so badly needs it, then you have my full support and deep admiration. I'm extremely happy to say There are a lot of people I could have reached out to who fit that bill right now, and I hope they'll all consider coming on the program one day. But when Rianne Bryce Davis said yes, I did a little dance. Rianne Bryce Davis has been hailed by the New York Times as a striking mezzo-soprano, and by the San Francisco Chronicle for her electrifying sense of fearlessness. This season, she's singing all over the world in productions from L.A. Opera to the Metropolitan Opera to her debut at Teatro a la Scala. As I release this, she'll be in Belgium, singing the composer in Ariadna of Naxos. She's also an activist, a producer, and one of the co-founders of the Black Opera Alliance, or BOA. She produced her first music video last year. It was called To the Afflicted, and it was her singing Sarah's aria from Donizetti's Roberto Devereux, mourning the loss of her work, overlaid with footage of the entire performing arts industry shutting down, then overlaid again with images and footage of the protests of police brutality. It was taken in by the opera world as this much-needed permission to grieve all that had been lost over the pandemic and to process all that must change. It was a fundraiser for the BOA, and it caught fire when selected as the 2020 official video for World Opera Day. In her dedication, she wrote, I dedicate this to the afflicted, those in opera and those fighting on the front lines for justice and equity. As we'll discuss, that project opened the door for her to produce Brown Sounds, 
a digital short co-produced with LA Opera and Oral Compass Projects of Henry Dumas's poem set by Ayanna Witter Johnson. This project, produced, composed, written, and performed by an all-Black team to express Black joy, has received critical acclaim from around the globe, winning Best Music Video at film festivals including the New York International Film Awards, New York Cinematography Awards, Hollywood Boulevard Film Awards, the Anatolian Short Film Festival, and the Silk Road Film Awards Cannes. In my opinion, Rayanne is one of those people Charlotte was talking about in our last episode, one who has found an artistic truth. Our talk went long, so I've decided to split it into two. This week, you'll hear us talk about her childhood in a Jamaican family, growing up in Mexico and Texas, getting her education in business and opera, the formation of the Black Opera Alliance, and going back to Jamaica to find her roots. I hope you enjoy our talk as much as I did. doing you are coming off of a incredible premiere you're coming off of a pretty awesome uh, would you call it season like I've been tracking you and it's just been non-stop for a few months throughout summer yeah how does it feel to just have a few days to chill <sighs> it's it's pretty darn spectacular not gonna lie um yeah it, it's funny because for so many people, the pandemic was uh, a chance to, you know, it's it's been so many things, mostly negative. But one of the things that most people had as an experience was was time, like a lot of time to get stuff done. And I think literally, I've never been as busy as I was during during the pandemic. I say was, the pandemic is quite still raging, but during our year of no work, I'll say. You know, mm-hmm. during our year of no work, you had quite a bit of work, right? Not given mm-hmm. to me by anyone because <laughs> there was no income, <laughs> mm. but I was doing the most things. So, mm. um, it's, it's, uh, it's actually kind of relaxing to get back to just singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll we will definitely get into that I've also never been so busy in my life as in the pandemic but I had a two-year-old so oh. uh, who was nine months old when the when the lockdown started bless you thank you so much Rianne Bryce Davis am I saying your name right by the way yes. okay when I are. first ever saw it I was like Ray I don't <laughs> As long as you don't go to Rihanna, we're good. Okay. (laughs) So, Rayanne Bryce Davis, thank you so much for being on Making It an Opera. I have been pretty open with you. And by the time this interview airs with everybody else, that this, the name of this podcast is kind of a red herring. The point is to get people who are obsessed with climbing that ladder and they don't know why they're climbing it to 
present them with a world of other options we have as singers to shape our art form and our world. And I knew I wanted to have somebody who was making it an opera in all the senses of the term. And that's why I'm honored to have you on. While you're making it an opera in the most widely accepted definition, you're also standing out, speaking your mind, making what matters to you. And as a result, you're molding and shaping the art form. And so you're making it while you're making it. I, I say that way too many people are going to get so sick of me. Uh, (laughs) You're about to sing. So when this airs, you will probably have sung um, probably about beginning of November is when this will come on. You'll probably be in Italy by then singing at La Scala. Yes or no? Um, November I'll be in Belgium. um, Belgium. Doing a, yeah. Doing a componist in Ariadne of Naxos. Oh, yay. Gorgeous. You're an award-winning film producer. You are an activist. You're the co-founder of the Black Opera Alliance. You bring it all and you don't hold back. So I'd love to start out by hearing your story. My understanding is your parents are from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. You were born in Mexico. Now people are living in Texas and I don't really know what happened in between. I couldn't find that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're we are uh sometimes I say I'm Jamex American because <laughs> like the, the you know the roots are Jamaican I popped out while my parents were studying in Mexico they were kind of waiting to get papers for the states and and that's where they got in, got into school so that's where they went uh my dad went to med school in Spanish when he didn't speak the language and he was like, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> Learned Spanish while doing med school. Always studied with textbooks in two different languages, in Spanish and in English, because America was the end goal. So mm-hmm. learned Spanish, learned double medical terminology, passed his boards and, and finally made it here. So we kind of traveled around the States um, as he did an internship in South Texas, uh, residency in upstate New York. So we lived in uh, close to Binghamton for about three years and then landed in North Texas. And then that's where we, that's where we stayed. But in the process of all of that, my parents are just the, the ultimate immigrant hustlers. Um, They were, you know, they got to Canada actually first and had two young babies while, while my dad was in school my mom had had education as a teacher, but she didn't have papers to work in Canada. So she did everything from like selling Avon. She baked bread and she went around in the blizzard of a snow in Canada and like sold it door to door to people. She, they just, they, and my dad during the summers would like chop wood and then sell it to people. He did door to door selling his books. In, in essence, they are just, they did any, everything they could think of to just hashtag make it, you know, mm-hmm. to survive with their tiny infants uh, in new countries. Um, and so that is certainly where I get my, my hustler spirit because they did it on the ultimate level with the highest, you know, with the highest uh, stakes with mm. survival, you know, 
Cause if you mm-hmm. don't, if you're not resourceful, you don't make it. Um, so that's how we got to North Texas. I spent most of, we moved there when I was about 10. So mm-hmm. I went to elementary high school and university there. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I started in high school. I was, I was always involved in music. My mom studied music as well. She's a singer. She's a classically trained singer. And she would drag us when we were little to, to recitals, <laughs> to like organ recitals, which we hated or whatever she had to do for her, for her school. We would just always just be there along with her. And when she went back to get a, a, another bachelor's um, because first of her, her first degrees are in education, mm-hmm. but music was always the dream. So finally, when she, she felt like she could go back to school to live her dream um, I was in about high school when she started studying music um, properly. And so she would drag me again to school with her and just plop me in the fine arts library and was like, okay, go. I'll be back in six hours. <laughs> Get your homework done. <laughs> well, it was summer. It was summer and I had nothing to do. <laughs> so all there was to do was to watch musicals. So I just sat there for hour on hour and hour and just watched a bunch of musicals. And then eventually that made me just completely fall in love with things like West Side Story and Phantom of the Opera and and all of these things that suddenly got me into hearing this classical sound. Mm. And through that, I kind of started getting into this crossover music, (laughs) like this band (laughs) called Amici Forever was my jam. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) opera with like a under it oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) and we make fun of it now because we're all so proper and educated but (laughs) you know I needed that pathway to get into opera um eventually I heard um on the on my Amici Forever CD the mezzo saying mon coeur souffre ta voix and so that was, I, I thought that was the most beautiful thing I had ever heard. And it was back in the days of like LimeWire and Napster. Mm-hmm. So I went to, to download um, that song and, and there was a, a recording of somebody else singing. And I was like, oh, who is this? Who's this mm-hmm. Olga Borodina? What is, well, I don't know what that is. So I clicked on it and I listened to it and I was like, whoa. <laughs> why is that so much better? Like, I didn't know why I had no words. I was just like, this is like otherworldly. And I love that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which which was my um, indoctrination into (laughs) the great opera. How incredible that was Olga Borodina. (laughs) Uh, I mean, we had some earlier influences again before that as well. Leon, um, the, the recording with Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle with the spirituals, that mm. was always rolling in the background. So we always heard these great voices, but that was when I got hooked on opera specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at what point did you start to think, well, maybe I could do it too? Mm-hmm. Um, pretty late. Uh, I was already in college and... I had always, I was in orchestra, I played violin, I was in band, I played clarinet, and I was always in choir. Um, 
And my mom was like, you know, you like singing. You do these arrangements for your group and stuff. Why don't you just go take some lessons with my old teacher? And it never hurts to learn how to sing better. And I think she just thought I would, uh, you know, take some lessons and then sing better for church, which is where I usually sing, mm-hmm. you know. And so I went and I started taking lessons. And uh, my teacher, Dr. Kim, was like, wait. <laughs> why aren't you doing this for real for real because I was studying business at the time and Mm. and I was like oh yeah it's nice that y'all are doing that music stuff that's really cute but I aim to make money and be successful so thanks (laughs) Thanks, but no thanks (laughs) so I was not about that life and I kept studying I kept studying and by the end of the semester uh the time came to register for the new the new, the new semester for my new business classes. And all of a sudden I found myself just not registering, just not registering. And I think just subconsciously it was like, this is not what you want. This, this is what it's about. So I I was like, okay, something's going on. So I went to have this conversation with Dr. Kim and I was like, look, okay, (laughs) I actually do want to do this. This is something that I love. And it's something that I've never felt before because opera takes all of our different parts. You know, I had a creative side. I had an intellectual side. I had a spiritual side and opera just like took all of the demands and put it in one sphere and goes, you know? Mm. And so, so I was like, I really want to do this, but I don't want to be a starving artist. I refuse to be a starving artist. Can I do this and do it at the highest level? Will you swear to me that if I make this decision, I will make it? <laughs> and wow. she said, yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Wow. She had some lady balls to say that. <laughs> like, <What>? holy crap. <laughs> I not anybody. <laughs> Serious lady balls. I agree. I agree. Oh my God. <laughs> and can you remind me again, what what semester were you at in your business degree? Um, I was a sophomore. You were a sophomore. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So did a restart and another four years of vocal performance love. (laughs) And do you like what I'm interested in hearing right now is that it sounds like for you, opera was an integration. Opera was like bringing together all of these sides of you. Has it well, we'll get there in your story, but it sounds like now even the um, the business side is also coming in. At what point do you think you looked up and were like, well, I'm really glad I took all those business classes. Was it early on or is it just recently? Um, I think when I started, when I opened an Instagram account about four years, three or four years ago, a lot of the principles that I had studied in marketing, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is the same thing. <laughs> Girl, I wanted to talk to you about your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, but also in general, in general, no, it's something I thought about all along because the only difference between being in marketing and being an opera singer is that you are marketing yourself as the product instead of an external product. It's, it's really the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it takes the same skill set. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually really what 
social media marketing is Mm -hmm. at all at this point. Like Mm -hmm. everybody's a personal brand, no matter what they're doing. Right. That was a hard lesson I had to learn just this week with the podcast. I was like, wait, you mean I have to, what? (laughs) Right. Right. Like they're going to have to see me. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, honestly, it kind of makes it easier because Mm -hmm. so many of us, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, I self-promotion. I can't, I'm so (laughs) so whatever. And it's like, but when you think of it as literally, this is me personally, and this is me, the product that is a professional package for people to hire. It makes it less emotional. And, mm. and you feel more comfortable being like, okay, this is what the product is about. This is what the product will be doing. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is what, you know, it makes it, I think it makes it much more simple. And also when we take rejection, which we take so much of in this career mm-hmm. um, and in the training for this career, you can shrivel like a flower under all of the, all of the criticism that you receive daily, Mm. but the protection when it's the product, it's just like, Oh, okay. This is what I can do to uh, upgrade the product. Okay. This is what I can do to upgrade the product. And therefore it's less about you are not enough. You have all Mm. of these problems, you know, and it, it gives you also a barrier of protection. That is so valuable. Mm. Thank you. That is, that's good stuff. <laughs> like, uh, I've been, I've been thinking so much about all of these, all of these different ways of thinking that we can kind of transform ourselves as singers. So we can start to feel like we're actually artists and we're not, I don't know, something else, pretty cogs and wheels or mm-hmm. is kind of how I tend to think of it. Mm-hmm. And what I love about your Instagram account, we're just kind of skipping all over the place and it's totally fine with me. Like what I love about your Instagram account though, is that I feel like I know you. And this is literally the second time I've talked to you. Like we have a lot of people in common, but I feel like I know you because I follow your Instagram. And so I think that's so interesting that you can be so authentic, even though it's the, like the product is authentic. The product is who you are, mm-hmm. but you still have that separation. Yeah. Um, is there any sort of mind game you have to go through th- with that? Or is it just like, no, this is what I'm putting out there. So it's the product period. Well, um, I mean, you have to decide how much of, because I talked about the personal self is what makes the product what it is. Mm-hmm. And you have to decide how much of the personal part of it you want to put into the product. For instance, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you mentioned a bit about the Black Opera Alliance. Uh, When that was coming into formation, all of the people that I have great respect for and trust were all saying, do not get involved with this you're on the verge of doing something very important in this field, stay quiet, stay obedient, follow the rules, you know, uh, (laughs) do what is expected, be the good opera singer, you know, Uh, because you're gonna hurt that and then you won't have the career that you would have had. And I made the decision, no, 
this is what my personal self believes in. And I believe in it. I believe that it is more important than having the shiny career at the end of the day, you know? So I decided to bring that from my personal into my, into the product, into who I am as an opera singer that I showed to the world. So that was a very conscious decision that I made last year. Wow. Ugh. I, sorry, I'm feeling the spirit right now. I, I shake a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like become a thing in my interviews when somebody is like really going to town. I'm either having to like go to church or just like move because it, whoo. Oh God, yes. And thank you for that. Thank you. Because I think that it's, it's going to be all of us together. It's going to be people who are making no money in opera, but love it so much that they're still willing to show up. And it's going to be people at the very top who have either benefited or not benefited and fought for it, um, benefited from these structures that actually aren't working. Mm -hmm. It's going to be all of us coming together and having the guts at whatever level of thing that we have to lose yeah and you did that <laughs> I mean I, I I'm happy it didn't it didn't all go to crap <laughs> all I still have jobs but there was a chance of it not happening so you know yeah um when you were working with the people in the Black Opera Alliance not all of the founders are open about being founders at this moment is that correct? Or I remember in the beginning, I couldn't really find who they were, but yeah, yeah. we were, we had decided towards the beginning to kind of just make it incognito, mm -hmm. um, which protected the members, which we still do. We still mm -hmm. only will, will say someone is a BOA member if they've given explicit uh, consent to that, just because there, there is still backlash that people face, you know, and we mm -hmm. want to, we wanted to protect people unless they make the decision that that's something that they're okay with um and we weren't sure where we were going to land on that um mm -hmm. now we've come to the point that i think most of the the people who stayed on long term because we have a leadership council that switched out quite a bit in the early days we had an interim leadership council before we had elections then we had elections then we have and there are at least 20 people that were that have been on the leadership council um, in the last year. Uh, there have been about three of us that continued through that entire process. And those mm -hmm. three of us have been open that we are um, co-founders. Um, Can you help me out a little bit with timeline? Yeah. You guys were actually already talking about this kind of work before the the George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor murders or was this afterwards? So it, it, it was afterwards. Um, oh, okay. Well, you guys, you guys got to work. Because <laughs> when I, when I saw it pop up, I was like, wow, they must've been like meeting in secret for months already. Like, no. They got their shit together. No. <laughs> no. It just shows you my timeline of needing to get stuff done. <laughs> right. No, actually, um, it was it was started not even supposed to be an alliance. It was started by three opera singers who kept being asked to do interviews. And so they were like, you know what, we should kind of see what 
what people would like us to address in these interviews because we mm. keep being the three that are asked for, you know, for comments. And so they just, you know, invited a few of their black friends to, to like join a group. And then they invited some friends and they invited some friends and they're like, okay, we're going to have like a conversation. We'll just call it a cookout. All of a sudden it was like 400 people talking about I'm coming to the cookout. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so the cookout was like, so <laughs> raw, like, all this stuff kept coming up because prior to that, we all have our experiences, but you mostly go through them by yourself. You're usually kind of the only black person in a space. And so there's no one to really share it with all of a sudden when there were 400 people being like, you have that, me too. You feel that that's happening to you. That's happening to me too. So it was all of a sudden, all this raw energy that came together in one big swoop. Uh, mm. And you know, when you have that many people come together, everybody's not gonna be on the same page about everything. So in the early days, there were these big like shifts with some people that were more conservative about their activism and some people who were more progressive about their activism. And so that was a whole big internal conversation Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we, we kind of became the more progressive organization and, and that's what we are today. And that's, that's what has remained. That's what became the Black Opera Alliance. Mm -hmm. You, you guys have been, at least from all I can see, not being in a large organization or being in it, obviously, um, it feels that you guys have been very purposeful in honoring what it's going to take for these institutions to kind of like turn their big old boats, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, I feel like that has, that has left so many doors open for conversation. And I wonder, because you did say that like, there was this kind of push and pull of conservative versus progressive. It's progressive, but it is, there isn't this, and there is an activist aspect of it, but it doesn't feel like you must, you must, you must right now, or we're all done with you. It's, there's very much like an open door. It feels so, it feels so loving, I think is the best way to put it, you know? I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I mean, that's what we've been striving for the whole time because nobody wins from like cancel culture. Like you're, we're done with you company. Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, that would mean less jobs for Black people. <laughs> so like, no, we won't sing for you, you know? So our goal is for the entire industry to come on board and to believe in racial equity and to really move the art form forward. Because at the end of the day, if we want to survive, we need everybody. We need the new perspectives. We need the diversity. We need the inclusion. You know, this mm -hmm. is how we're going to move into a new era of opera. If we keep things the same with old white men, always just in their only their ideas, we will not survive the, the decade, I don't think. Because mm -hmm. who, who, who from the outside will see that and say, that's something I want to be a part of. Of course not. What's exciting mm -hmm. about that? We've seen that for 400 years. Let's do something new. So yeah. many art forms are pushing the boundaries and opera is always kind of 
slow, like we're such a big, slow moving wagon. And so I'm, I'm so excited. At least some companies are really being intentional about, about doing the work and Mm -hmm. trying to, to create equity in opera. And so the Black Opera Alliance is about encouraging these companies that are doing the work, providing any resources that we can do, that we can offer. And also encouraging those who are slower, (laughs) you know, and really holding up a mirror to the industry and being like, this is where we are and this is where we need to be. Mm -hmm. Um, The transparency aspect of our work is, is, is paramount because Mm -hmm. if we don't even know where we are, how can we know where we're going or if we get there, Mm -hmm. you know? So absolutely. And I think also, one element I've noticed in myself uh, as an artist, as a person who has worked in large houses, is at a certain point you look up as an artist and you say, why am I doing this? Mm. And you need to have a good answer. Yeah. And if you don't, you know, something's got to give. For me, it was just getting out for a little while and getting some perspective and mm-hmm. starting this podcast and doing some other stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think what Black Opera Alliance and um, the the loving demands you are placing on the industry is doing for all of us, you're giving us some better answers. Mm. You're giving us when there's that diversity in the makers, there's more exciting art. Mm-hmm. And so the other artists, all the other artists of all um, shapes, sizes, and races are going to look up and get excited and want to be part of it yep. inside yep. and outside the industry. Yep. And in our audiences, when suddenly they realize that opera isn't the old stuffy mm-hmm. they thought it was, you know, then, then we have a chance and then they feel like that it is somewhere where they can go to and that is for them as well. Yeah. And it's kind of what's coming up for me talking about this is also like most of my work was in Germany and um, there's this feeling of like, let's rack our brains to come up with something new, something that's going to get people into the theater. And, and it's wonderful. There's some crazy shit going on there. And I'm, I was happy to be part of it, but at a certain point it, became formulaic it was probably formulaic long before I was there but at a certain point I looked up and I was just like oh my god if another woman gets raped on stage Mm. for no apparent reason Mm. I like um and I I think it's this like we're so worried about bringing in new people but we're not we're not actually ready to be anything new Mm -hmm. until we are until like we actually bring in the new people until we actually relinquish some power in one place or another so that somebody new, some new perspective can come in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a new way of being instead of a new way of, Mm -hmm. it has to come from within. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, I want to rewind just for a second. It kind of comes back into this into what we're talking about, these ways of being. You talked about this immigrant hustle and really seeing that and experiencing it. And that in some ways you embody that now. 
And um, one thing I wonder, I wonder about just because it's it, this is just a thing for me. I'm curious about what relationship you have with place after having lived in so many places and now you travel so many places. And it was a thing that I started to kind of wrestle with moving back to America. Like, what is home? What does this even mean to me? That's an interesting conversation. I think because the places were never constant, what was constant was my family. And so therefore it kind of just like pushed us into each other. And we're just this very, very close little ball of home. Hmm. Um, We talk about going on vacations now. And one of my sisters like wants to stay home um, for Christmas. And I'm like, no, but like home is anywhere where we are. Mm. Like it's that connection that is home to me. And I have no attachment to locations anymore. Mm. Um, My sisters and I, and my mom have always just been each other's best friends. So Mm. sometimes it's a bit hard to like have other friends because it's like, they're always the ultimate. And Mm. so you're, you're kind of just enough by yourselves because we've been by ourselves for so long. Mm. Um, So yeah, I, I, I've never had a very strong attachment to place also to things. I mean, just to throw a random story in there when I was uh, my first big trip as a, as a singer, while I was still in school, I had a summer that was opera on the Avalon for like a month. And then I was going to spend my sister's birthday with her in Paris because then I was going to go to Austria and I didn't know anything about luggage or rules. (laughs) and so I went with my like huge suitcases like here I go I'm gonna be on the road for three months (laughs) and was fine you know they charged me like 50 bucks for my suitcases in America and to Canada but and then to Paris also sell fine but in the leg from Paris to Austria I was you know towards the end of the summer I was kind of out of money I had just enough to to get there and be okay and they suddenly told me that my luggage was, you could only have one. And if you had a second one, they charged 25 euros per kilo of weight. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, of course my, my suitcase is like 20, 20 kilos or whatever. <laughs> so it's gonna be, I don't know, 400 whatever dollars. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, was, I had no like there was no way I could afford that and I literally was forced to leave the suitcase because I had no I had there was no and I had already sent one of them so I couldn't even like choose my favorite things and like put it in the other bag or whatever the other one was already gone and so they, they told me that I needed to, because just to eliminate bomb threats, I needed to take everything out of the suitcase and put it personally in the trash. So I, so I had to be like, goodbye little dress that I loved so much that I'll never see again. Goodbye, darling gown that I've loved with all of my heart. Goodbye. <laughs> opera right there <laughs> it was the coat aria but to like a whole suitcase <laughs> <of things. laughs> 
That experience also made me unattached to things. Mm-hmm. They <laughs> come and they go, man. Oh my god! What are you gonna do? <laughs> so that kind of brings me into you going back to Jamaica at the end of your studies. Was there a certain sense of belonging when you got there, or had you already kind of identified more as Jamaican? Because when I was reading. Um, this interview with you in Jamaica's Gleaner and you were talking about this kind of like coming home in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely my parents' country before mm. that, you know, I, um, we, we were, we went for weddings and for funerals and, you know, I loved my family, but you know, I would see them once every five years or whatever, you know? Mm. And so this was finally my chance to have my own heritage tour, have my own experience with my roots. And of course I wanted to do it through my own lens, which was through artistry, through, you know, through music especially. And so I spent like 14 days just doing all of the things I could. I spent a lot of time in the National Library listening to all of this folk music. Um, I went on a tour with the Jamaican folk singers uh, who happened to be my my aunt, which I didn't even realize, you know, so there, there's this long heritage of, of connection with the island. And I met Andrew Marshall, like I was talking about at, 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 a, <laughs> at a library, he and his choir were performing and I was like, this is amazing. My mom's old teacher when she was at Arden in school he was there I got to meet him so it was just this amazing connection to 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 the music makers of Jamaica and having Mm. that connection in that way was was so beautiful and and then led to my coming back to Jamaica to be able to perform I did a Handel's Messiah there I did like a concert at the Pegasus and it was, it was my chance to have that experience on my own terms. And now it's been so beautiful because I, I'm able to share those music makers with, that I had that experience with on recitals that I do all over the world. Um, and to be able to bring perf- composers like Peter Ashburn and, and Andrew Marshall, Noel Dexter, all of these amazing people, Mikhail Johnson, who's now in the UK is a young budding Jamaican composer, you know, just being able to share that with people. Now, Andrew Marshall is commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony through Sasha Cook. And, you know, so it's exciting for them and it's exciting for me. And and it's just, it's really exciting. And that was one thing that when I was reading that story, I thought, wow, like she already felt this agency and this sense of like, I have the power to give voice Mm. to this. I have this connection to to this part of the classical world and and look I can go and perform it and you were just you were just out of undergrad right yeah well just out of grad school just out of grad school yeah it's an interesting thing for me because I think so many of us are waiting for this sort of legitimacy to be granted to us Mm. before we feel like we can do anything like that was that ever even like a, a thing for you? Did it even occur to you to to think about that? 
Well, I wish I, I, I could say that I had been thinking about it that clearly and that decisively, but really it was a, it was a chance to get to know myself mm. because I knew that this was, this was part of me and, and I didn't know that aspect. The whole time I was there, I was kind of doing my best Jamaican patois and, you know, just trying to feel a sense of belonging because it, it's not something that you as a black person feel that you walk into a city and everybody looks like you that mm. that hadn't been an experience that that I had I had had regularly I, I grew up in a small town in Texas where I was almost usually the only black person in the room so just that coming home um was enriching to me. And then just engaging in that was a natural outpouring of, and now I want to share the experience that I've had. And through that sharing, <laughs> all of this happened. But mm. uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I was quite that intentional about it, but it was, it was getting to know myself and they were part of who I was, who I am. Mm it's like we end up doing courageous things just because we have to do them for ourselves and we mm -hmm. don't realize yeah. how courageous they are at the time <laughs> yeah yeah all right that's all for now next week we'll be back with how her singing career started to take off the full story on her film productions and what she's learned from facing her fear and showing up to create her work anyway you can find all things Rayanne Bryce Davis at www.rayanne.com. That's R-A-E-H-A-N-N. -N. Follow her on Instagram at Rayanne Bryce Davis and Twitter at Rayanne BD. Links to her videos will be in the show notes, as well as a link to donate to the Black Opera Alliance to help them continue their important work. This podcast is a production of Sounds Like Cool, with editing by me and production help from Sarah Decker. Theme music is Our Block Party by Reactor Productions. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to subscribe, leave us some love on Apple Podcasts, and check us out on Instagram at makingit.opera to stay updated and become part of the conversation. You can also go to makingitinopera.com or follow the link in the show notes to support the podcast. I'm Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.